0: Any information in this podcast is not intended to promote or recommend any particular product or services offered by Bell's Family & Associates. It does not take into account the objectives, financial situation, or needs of any investor. Before making an investment decision, investors should seek professional advice. Good morning,
1: Lucy, and good morning, Rashid. I guess it's evening in Canada the central topic today coming out of Silicon Valley Bank, I'm calling it FTX butterfly wing. The Silicon Valley Bank is really a story about treasury mismanagement, about digital access to funds, and about a social media frenzy that all culminates in a bank failure. We now know, because we've just had the statement from the Fed and the FDIC and Treasury, that there's gonna be no loss of depositor funds, not only at Silicon Valley Bank, but really at any other bank in America as it's currently constructed.
0: Welcome, everybody, to this week's Tomorrow's News. In this season of our podcast, we are bringing regular expert guests to share with our community their perspectives on the market and what's been happening. Today, we are bringing Rashid Saludan back on the show with us. In addition to being an academic and experienced tech investor, and podcaster himself, he has written two books, including one on post-crisis bank regulation of mortgage-backed securities titled Regulating Securitized Products, a Post-Crisis Guide. He was a manager for the Treasury Portfolio for Bank of America. His many academic papers include writing about bank runs, including, and perhaps very relevant to today's discussion, how to mark credit risk in a price crisis and who should be paying for bank failures. I think a lot to be discussed. Welcome, Rashid.
1: Thanks so much for having me again. Such a pleasure to have you on, Rashid. And let's get right to it. As I've said, we've got to really nail, hopefully, some topics that people aren't considering at this level. First of all, Rashid, let's get your take on the thought process of the Fed and Treasury here. And the context of history around what occurred with Silicon Valley Bank. I always like to start when I'm talking about financial
2: regulation or banking crises with the 1930s. That's because almost all of the policies and agencies that we have still today in the U.S. were a result of the bank failures of 1931 to 1933, including the FDIC that guarantees deposits in the U.S. up to $250,000. And also pretty much our entire capital raising mechanisms, for instance, for mortgages, for home loans. We have you know Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in the U.S., which are government-guaranteed entities that raise money to fund house purchases. Forever we've had bank runs, but really we didn't have bank runs the same way as we did in 1930, 1933. We had 30 states completely closed their banking system for long periods of time. We had literally 60, 70% of mortgages were in default. And so the government learned in 1931 to 33 that when people are scared of having their money in their bank, they go take it out, right? And so the solution was to have this FDIC insurance. So basically retail investors would get their money back and in 1933, the first check was written to some old widower, the day after the bank was closed. And that kind of stopped the bank runs in 1933. But bank runs on themselves shouldn't be, it's not obviously a problem. If they go bankrupt, they go bankrupt and people lose their money. But there's a unique thing the banks do that no other industry does, and they create money. I'm going to go back one step. Last year, we had the Nobel Prize awarded to Diamond and Divvig and Ben Bernanke for realizing this exact phenomenon. Diamond and basically talked about why we have bank runs and Bernanke showed why they're so bad. So we have the FDIC to guarantee deposit holder so they don't run on the bank. They don't try and take their money out all at once because banks are fragile, right? They borrow money as deposits, which you can get back at any time. And they lend, they make loans, illiquid loans for longer term. If people start to demand their money back, they can't sell their loans. So the bank goes under. If people start demanding their money back, the banks have to stop lending, and that creates less money in the system. And when that happened in large scale in the US, we got the Great Depression. So we know that bank runs are really bad. So the FDIC just stopped that. But the problem is, if we guarantee people's deposits, banks will do crazy stuff, right? So we had these savings and loan crisis in the US was basically a lot of these really, really small banks, quasi-banks, savings and loan institutions that would offer more and more interest on deposits to take more and more risk on the other side. And depositors didn't care, right? Because they, they, would, they would get their money back from the FDIC. So they would give these risky banks more money. The banks took a lot of risk, and they all went default. And the FDIC had to pay out a lot of money. And we had the Resolution Trust Corp, and basically the US government had to bail everybody out. What we realized then was we need to regulate the banks so that they have enough capital in case they lose money in credit risk, and we learned that in the global financial crisis, they also need money to cover liquidity needs If they can't roll over their financing or if a bunch of depositors want to withdraw their money. The problem here is the U.S. dislikes regulation. The moment you put a new regulation in place or try to put a new regulation in place like we did in the global financial crisis, there is a huge bank lobby and they will fight to roll back that regulation as hard as they can. Right. So with this, just an example, the uniform capital rule in the US, which basically said that dealers, if they wanted to own assets, so investment dealers wanted to hold assets in their books, they had to put up a lot of capital. That was actually rolled back. The, the investment dealers lobbied, so they would not have put up almost any capital to hold what? CDOs and subprime mortgages. And that's why we got Lehman and Bear to go bust.
1: Let's just pause there. So there's a really important point, right? That it is always going to be the view of a bank as a business that regulation has a cost. It's got a cost of capital. That means anytime you've got to put in another dollar of capital, that capital has a cost in it. Obviously, it reduces your return. It reduces your return on equity, return on assets, and your ability to generate earnings. And that's not good if you run a bank, right? That's About as simple as it gets. That's absolutely
2: right. And so what the global financial crisis did, or actually the time leading up to the global financial crisis as well, was we we started to recognize that banks take credit risk and that they should have put up a lot of capital to cover any credit losses. What we didn't do as well was we didn't apply that same logic to risk-free securities. So banks, for a very long time, because we had very low interest rates, they were borrowing Depositors' money at zero. And so lending at any price, any return was profitable. So they'd be buying large portfolios of bonds and a little bit higher yield mortgage-backed securities. So on the average bank holds about 25% in these high quality bonds. They're called HQLA, high quality liquid assets.
1: Just to be clear here, high-quality liquid assets are generally US Treasury. So they're guaranteed by the US government. They're mortgage-backed securities, which are Freddie and Fannie guaranteed. These are AAA securities. They're as risk-free as you can get, but the price of the asset still moves with interest rates, right? So you're going to get your money back if you hold it to maturity, but the price of the asset is going to go up and down with interest rates.
2: That's right. It's a very good point. So you're absolutely right. So you're borrowing at zero and you're investing in these securities that might yield one or 2% a year or two ago, right before we had the recent Fed tightening. And that sounds like free money, right? Because the treasuries you hold, you never have to mark them to market. You hold them in portfolios that you buy them at par, they yield one and a half percent. You always mark them at par, you always mark them at the price you near where you bought them at. But the problem is the market price is going up and down. And for a very long time, treasury prices were going up because interest rates were coming down. But for the last (laughs) year-ish, we haven't had that. In fact, rates have gone up and treasuries have fallen in price. And not just a little bit. TLT, which is the BlackRock Long-Dated Treasury Bond Fund, is down 45% from its high. So that means if you held long-term treasuries a little over a year ago, and you still hold them now, you're down 45% if you want to sell them today. Now, these banks generally don't have to sell them today, right? Because depositors' money is generally sticky. People don't move money from their banks very often. They're notoriously loyal to their banking system. And you brought it up earlier. Historically, that's been the case.
1: You hinted at a certain point around bank treasury management, right? Because if you're sitting in the treasury seat at the bank, you're looking at all of these factors around there's a regulated amount of cash you need to have or available or near cash you need to have as a bank and then you're looking at your risks of your assets but you're in the treasury of this bank and you think you know something about your depositors and you don't expect that they're all going to leave on the same day so what are you doing in these circumstances what's going on here and perhaps we can bear a little bit about what may have been going on in the minds of Silicon Valley Bank around these issues
2: A real bank, a normal bank, let's call it, a large bank, large commercial bank, has quite diversified sources of funding. And generally speaking, depositors' money comes and it goes. It's not highly correlated. Some people put money in, some people take their money out. But on average, it doesn't move very much. Whereas rates have been rising and... Deposit rates haven't been rising. People still keep their money in banks. Like I said, they're reasonably loyal. So a bank's management is going to look at that and say, "I'm pretty sure I'm going to have these deposits for a long time. I can have X amount of money lent for the long term, invested in long term mortgage-backed securities, long term treasuries, whatever it happens to be. I feel pretty confident in that." The first issue is, I feel pretty confident that I'm going to be able to fund my assets with these cheap liabilities. On the other side, I'm going to hold some assets now. Every bank in the world borrows short and lends long, right? I.e., they borrow money, that's demand deposits, you get your money back at any time as a depositor, and you lend on loans, which are illiquid and may may repay in five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. But what is missing in this is the fact, as you just said earlier, is that these assets, I told you TLT is down 45%. These bonds are going up and down in price. I should probably want to hedge that, right? If something can go down 45% in price... I should make sure I have something in place that would offset the fact that it's going down to 45%. And in fact, there's a whole market, a multi-trillion dollar market exists just for this very thing called the the interest rate swap market. So you can actually hedge out, you can offset or insure all of your treasury bond risk right, in the swap market. And that's what you're supposed to do. That's what I did. I had to do that. The very second, as a treasury manager, if I bought a bond, I immediately had to enter into an interest rate swap. So I did not have any interest rate risk. If the Fed started to raise rates, I would lose money on my bond, but I'd make money on my swap. Of course, there's a cost to that, right, Rashid? Exactly. If the bond I'm buying, let's say the mortgage-backed bond is 5%, and the swap costs 4%, you're absolutely right. I'm only going to make 1%. Because a lot of the risk you take in the markets is called duration risk, i.e. the idea that yields go up and down, right? (laughs) And these days, it's moving more than the stock market on some days. (laughs) <laughs> right? And so you don't want to have that risk outstanding. To the extent that you do want that risk outstanding, you know, you're going to get power back at maturity. You want to make very sure that you're never going to have to sell them because that's when you get into trouble. If you don't hedge, you don't manage your risk properly and you have to sell because your depositors are leaving. And this gets to the crux of what happened at Silicon Valley Bank. It took money from the depositors. What kind of depositors? Venture capitalists, and startups. And that money was growing so fast. They're raising more and more capital, right? They doubled their deposit base, right? From yep. I think 80 billion to 160 billion in one year, yep. right? It grew very, very fast. We know what happens to banks who grow their deposit base really, really fast because we saw that in Iceland in 2005, 2006, when hot money flows went in there, what do they do with the money? <laughs> mm-hmm. They spent it. Mm-hmm. And then when the crisis happened, everyone wanted their money back and they couldn't give it. They borrowed seven times their GDP in foreign capital. And when people wanted their money back, they couldn't give it back because it was in the liquid security. So we're taking this hot money, taking this money from venture capitalists is growing very rapidly. I could do something with it. But what happened here? A couple things have happened, right? Number one is that market's in a bear market now. People are spending right. rather than raising. So we're starting to see people withdrawing their money. That's number one. Number two. These people are in, they're very interconnected, right? These VCs, venture capitalists and startups, large startups talk to each other all the time. And some very, very large, I wouldn't call them startups anymore, had most of their funds with Silicon Valley Bank. Circle mm-hmm. had 3.3 billion. Roku had about half a billion. BlockFi had about 300 millions. These are very large exposures, very large deposits in banks, which are not insured because insurance is only up to $250,000. So we have, what's we call that a highly correlated deposit base. If one person leaves, it's more likely the other person is going to leave. And so we got that. So the other problem we have is that Silicon Valley Bank took all this money. They made some loans, but then they put a lot of money in the US treasuries and in mortgage-backed securities. They didn't hedge. They didn't offset the risk on, and they were down a lot. Now- We're not sure, chicken or egg on this one. Was it that people started to take their money out and that meant that Silicon Valley Bank had to sell some of the securities at a loss, which they actually did some. Last year, they actually sold some. They sold a billion and lost $100 million. It was a 10% down mark to market. Was it that or was it just they wanted to de-risk the portfolio so they just sold some and they took a loss? Whatever it did, they had sold a lot of their available for sale securities, a lot of their treasury securities, and they announced a fundraising at the same time. Some tech people got it in their head that this was very, very bad. Right? All of a sudden, they woke up and said, "Look at—we put money in this bank, and it's down billions of dollars mark to market in the treasury portfolio. Let's get out." And Peter Thiel, one of the most famous venture capitalists of all time, one of the biggest startup founders of all time, told his founders' fund group, "Get all your money out right away." It's a big feedback loop, right? These people all know each other, so they all want to withdraw at the same time. On Wednesday, forty-two billion dollars. Right. (laughs) What's that? That's about a quarter of the entire asset
1: base of of Silicon Valley Bank wanted out. I mean, even if you'd been running Silicon Valley Bank perfectly, that change in asset base in and of itself is so material in an instant that it's almost unmanageable. You could have given people their cash back, but the other changes would have been pronounced in any case, even if you'd had a perfectly hedged portfolio and, and you'd other capital elements were there, it you cannot run a business easily through that kind of bank run.
2: If it just happened that everyone wanted to take their money out, you're absolutely right. No bank would
1: survive. The reason I bring that up is that many other regional banks who have much better managed treasury operations, maybe not perfectly, but better, were potentially facing on Monday morning. The same kind of dynamic, right? I mean, I happen to know from my streams that everybody was saying, I'm opening an account with JP Morgan. And as I've said to people, JP Morgan doesn't want your hot money either. Nobody wants your hot money, right? But it would be an easy thing to observe that it's just a problem if you've got a bank that loses a third of its deposit base overnight or within a few days, even if you're managing perfectly.
2: Yes. So you brought contagion. That's a really good point to bring up now. I think it really fits, which is this is basically what happened in the shadow banking market during the global financial crisis, which was some subprime debt started to go wrong. And it was a very opaque business. So nobody really knew who was holding what bad credit. So they just sold everything, right? Or they stopped renewing their short, there was a lot of short-term debt. They just didn't renew their short-term debt. The whole thing fell over. It started as a solvency crisis, which was the subprime mortgages, but really it was a liquidity crisis. And this is what kind of happened here, right? Is everyone saying, well, you know, if a bank run could happen to Silicon Valley Bank, why could it happen to any other bank, even if it didn't have the same mismanagement? We don't know that it has, we we can see what amount of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities that they have on their books. We can't see what their hedges are. So we just want out right? We right. want to go to a bank that's probably got a little bit diversified on both sides, right? We trust to be more diversified on the deposit sides. They won't be run on. Well, three things actually. One's a bit funny, right? We want to go to a place where we're a diversified group of depositors, so less chance for a run. We want a bank that is more closely watched. And if it fails, will be bailed out by the US Treasury. Too big to fail. Yep. But those banks also have higher regulations. They actually do have liquid assets in case there is like an overly large amount of withdrawals, right? And the third thing was, we don't want them to be mismanaged. (laughs) We want them a diversified portfolio, not two thirds of my assets in unhedged, highly risky, highly interest rate risky bonds while yields are rising. So this kind of yield gets us to the response, right? (laughs) What happened? Well, what always happens is the FDIC comes in. And that's what they did. They always come in on Friday and they always leave on a Monday. It's an amazing system. No one who's been insured has ever lost a single penny, right? Because they're just an amazing group of people. They come in, they close the bank. They look, they, over the weekend, they check it all out. They try and sell it. If they can, they try and sell the bank. They do all the things they do. But on Monday morning, they open and every insured depositor has access to their Mm -hmm. $250,000. It's an incredible thing. Calls it a bailout. It's not a bailout. The FDIC is an insurance company funded by industry. Silicon Valley Bank and other banks, they pay a premium. And when one of them gets into trouble, they get
1: bailed out, right? That People free. use bailed out, and I even see politicians and others using. So who is being bailed is an important point, right? Yes, the management, the shareholders and bondholders of the bank, there is no bailing for them. They are gone. They're finished. But the depositors, and importantly, the insured depositors have no risk. In fact, the only risk they have is if the U.S government failed. So the depositors are bailed out. That is, they get their cash back.
2: The U.S. government's not even an issue here, though, right? Because, yes, the FTC is backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, but it's never needed it. They right. actually borrow money from the U.S. government. They have 100 billion dollars 125 billion dollars in reserves just for this occasion, and they never lose money anyway, because they're taking the money the bank already has and paying out the insured borrowers first. And we will say that actually bondholders can still get their money, they still can get their money back if there's enough left over, right? And equity holders actually theoretically could get money back too. But they true, true.
1: do. Yeah, all good sense.
2: So, but all these big, these venture capital firms, these corporations, startups, right, they have more than $250,000. At year end, 85% yeah. of the deposits were uninsured. Correct. This is not your retail bank here, right? <laughs> this is a corporate bank, if anything, and right. so they're in trouble, right? And a large amount of the startup universe relies on Silicon Valley Bank, but you're absolutely right. There's contagion effects. So, is the FDIC enough in this case? Probably not, right? And we know it's true because during the global financial crisis, the FDIC actually increased their deposit insurance. We do know that it's in a crisis situation. It's probably 250,000 dollars is probably not enough. So, And also, a corporation can't really just put $250,000 here, $250,000 there. They want to keep their money all in one place, do treasury management. What the Fed did was they said, okay, those bonds, we know those bonds because the treasury issued them and we hold them. So we're going to, in quotes, they use the word lend against them at par. So remember, I said the TLT, we're down 45%. So let's say long-term treasury bonds are trading at $0.60 in the dollar. They will take them in and lend. They will take them from Silicon Valley Bank and give Silicon Valley Bank par, even though they're only worth 60 right. But don't forget, if you don't sell them, they're going to be worth par 100 at maturity. So it's just the interest rate. But the treasury is paying itself, right? The treasury yep. is paying 1% in interest in the first place, Right. Right, so it's not losing anything by doing this in a way, right? There's no chance of loss here. Uh, you often talk about socializing risks and privatizing benefits, and this is happening here to some degree. But that's not it, right? They are kind of buying the asset at sixty cents in the dollar, lending against it. Sixty cents in the dollar, uh, an asset's worth sixty cents. They're lending full amount against it,
1: but they owe it to themselves. There's no risk there, right? Right. right. I mean, in theory, one could say if you had a pension portfolio, you might think of it the same way, right? I mean, you might say. I'm quite happy to buy these bonds at this price, and eventually, I know they mature at par, and away I go, right? I get my defined return for that period. There's no risk to that. Now, of course, that's not pension management, but you can imagine as a per the the Treasury in this case is no different than any other investor in that regard, right? So I would would say it's,
0: yeah,
2: I would say it's slightly differently. We should probably go back a little bit and talk about what this program really is. The Federal Reserve can't take losses. So anytime you hear the Fed is doing something here, it's really the Treasury that's doing it.
1: Fed is the agent of the Treasury.
2: It's the agent of the Treasury, and it's also the funder of the Treasury to some degree, right? It can do things for the Treasury. What's happened here is under this program, we're going to use Treasury funds. I think it's $25 billion, something like that. And that's going to backstop a Fed program to create a liquidity facility to lend against these HQLA's high-quality assets. We call them AAA securities, agency debt and U.S. treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. They're usually really, really high-quality liquid assets. And the idea here is that if a bank has a run, instead of fire-sailing those assets, selling them at a loss to repay depositors, they can go to the Fed and pledge them as security to take a loan, even if the value of those securities is lower than the amount of loan they need. And that would repay the depositors. And that should stop any run at any bank, at, at least any healthy bank from any depositors. Depositors should not need to run anymore. Maybe someone else might run on the bank, but depositors won't because they know they're going to get their money back because of this hey, treasury that's, backstop.
1: That's all depositors, insured and uninsured. All depositors now have a new blanket of safety. Somewhat, yeah, that's absolutely what it does. This it's, is a it's, major it's, change it's, in US banking. It occurred last night or whatever. It's important, <laughs>
2: right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's unprecedented. It's not crazy, right? The idea right. that two or a few thousand dollars is not a lot of money in terms of corporate deposits. We should have a system where corporations can safely transact without fear of the bank misusing the money and then not. To, us not be able to get our money back. This leads us to, I think, probably the most important thing here is what this doesn't do. We don't have enough detail to know exactly what this program is going to look like. But what we know has happened here is that they are using this program to guarantee the uninsured depositors at Silicon Valley Bank, but also at Signature Bank, ticker symbol SBNY. And I think the first thing to understand there is they're going to wipe the equity in those banks to zero right, right. but signature bank isn't in default it's not in receivership they just seized it now right it's not Over the weekend, it's not having yeah. trouble it's not having trouble fund, it's, it's not being run on that's the key i mean sure right. they have losses but it's not being run on it's interesting that they've put two banks together silicon valley bank and signature bank let's just leave that aside for a second so two weeks ago we found some news that Was part of the spark that caused the bank run here. That was we had insider selling. This is because the shareholders were wiped out. But who wasn't wiped out? Management. Because management sold before the FDIC came in. Insider sales of very, very large numbers, right? The CEO sold 11%, CFO sold 32%, the CMO sold 28%, and general counsel sold 19%. They went long. Way too many treasuries at the bottom of the market with depositors' money, with understanding the risk was that the depositors left, they'd have to sell the assets at a loss, which is what they've been doing. The people that made those decisions are partially out. They've well, made their profits. Well, wait, 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 I,
1: I disagree with you a little bit there. They, they were out as of that moment. I think they're going to spend the next decade with their legal counsel being uh-huh. sued. <laughs> around what did you know and when did you know it? I think
2: it's a fair point. They are going to be in and out of Senate committees for a very, and out of court for a very long time. I agree with that. And I don't know how much money they made. I know that the, the CEO only sold $2 million worth of stock. It's not a life-changing amount of money. If you're going to spend $10 million in legal fees in the next 20 years. Yes. What I'm trying to get at is, if you're taking a lot of risk to making a lot of return, this is moral hazard, right? Because if you lose... Okay, your shareholders lose, but all your depositors are made whole, right? If you win, who keeps that money? The shareholders and, well, management, even though I've heard from a lot of people that the idea of the Fed here was to eliminate moral hazard by wiping out the equity of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. I don't think it quite does that. And they use the word lend in there. So using the word lend in there tells me they're also going to do it for going concerns. You can't lend to a company in receivership.
1: With this pivots to, I think, an important point, which is my observation about the world would be one of two things is about to occur. There's about to be an amazing free lunch, and we should go dine on it. That is, we should go create a bank, get a bunch of deposits, keep rolling the dice on lending to whatever we want. And we'll either make a ton of money or or we'll go bust. But at the end of the day, no depositor is ever going to come to your house because they're going to get their money back. So that's number one. And Number two is, in my view, more likely that all of that benefit will come with a big cost. And that cost will be borne not only by dice rolling risk takers, but by prudent, normal course bankers who are just trying to run a reasonable business. And it will likely be a rise in the cost of capital, an increase in the cost of operating that business, and a reduction in return on equity, because you can't have all of the freedom on one side without a cost on the other.
2: Absolutely. I confess I have no answers to how it's all going to play out. The first way I would say it is this, right? So we know that depositors are not really price sensitive. Because they don't move if rates are like a little bit off or even a lot off. They value their banking relationship. Maybe that's changing. And that's actually been brought up a few times is that the run in the bank happened because this new generation of depositors will move on a moment's notice just because because someone on Twitter says so. (laughs) So maybe it's a generational issue, but I think it's actually in this case, an industry issue. I can see arguments about maybe we should have higher rates. So that would cause lower earnings for banks, right? Because you have to track people closer to the market rate. Right. Or I can also see the other way around completely. I can see it goes to zero and we create banks that are a lot more robust, if that makes sense. The most extreme case is called a narrow bank, right? A narrow bank issues basically takes deposits in and buys T-bills. Right. No fractional reserve banking. You don't need much regulation for this, right? right. And There has been narrow banking before, and it's been, it was brought up a lot during the global financial crisis. This idea that we should have a system where it's about the plumbing. It's about the rails and not about, you separate the benefits of banking, payments and treasury management and things. You separate that from the business of taking credit risk. And we're doing that more and more. The capital requirements post global financial crisis made more private, right? More private debt companies around, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Some of them are leveraged, some are not. More private funds that are doing credit to taking creditors, making loans. So you can imagine a case where we go banking becomes two kinds of banks, right? One is a bank that just does all the banking stuff you want, and the other one, the other kind takes credit
1: risk or risks. So you got infrastructure, you've got call it infrastructure. So you're going to make your payroll, you're going to pay your water bill, you're going to have your cash sloshing around. You know that there's no risk of loss but you've also got no return on that cash or cash effectively sits there and the infrastructure is paid for by the uh, yield on the treasury assets. And
2: that would solve all these problems, right? Because now Roku could, put, could, be, could be managing all their money in one place, knowing full well that no management company is buying 40 or treasuries with it unhedged or making loans to their cousins in Luxembourg. And there'd be no need for the government at all. It's far away from that. The negative side is, I think that, like many cases we've had with banking over hundreds of years, that they'll be for the chaotic evil to take advantage of this, right? This backstop and right. literally bet the farm more often, which is what happened during the savings and loan crisis in the US was exactly this. All depositors were guaranteed. They don't care. Roku doesn't care anymore. So they'll give their money to anybody. Yep. And if actually, if you pay them more, maybe they'll give you more. And then right. you, take, you take a lot of risk. And if it if you if you lose, then you sell the treasuries to and the high quality assets to the well, not to sell, pledge them to the Fed and yep. pay back all your depositors. And if you're right, you take you make a lot of money, a lot more money than you would if you just if you were prudent.
1: Let's leave that topic there. In the couple of minutes I have left, I want to talk about crypto. And I want to talk about crypto because it's quite interesting. And we talked about a signature bank. Coinbase is saying that had 240 billion cash balance at Signature Bank. They were like, they had this massive cash. But now crypto, which relied on rails around US banks, has really been cut off from pretty much every US bank. And it creates a very interesting scenario, right? Because there's a lot of capital in the crypto space. What's your view of what's going on here and what might be next? It might be a topic for another podcast, but I think let's at least uh, tease it here.
2: There's a couple of things here. So first of all, there's the rails. You're absolutely right that the regulated on and off ramps are getting tougher and regulated entities as custodians coming under more scrutiny. We can see how Silvergate's gone under and this doesn't look good in Washington. And again, hot money, right? It's very similar to the Silicon Valley case. Tech has turned around. It's gone in a bear market. And instead of getting huge inflows, we're getting outflows. And that happened in crypto as well. And we had FTX. That's what caused Silvergate's demise. But Silicon Valley Bank is also a crypto banker, mm-hmm. right? So uh, $3 billion a circle. And I think, like I said, I think about $200 million with BlockFi, which is another one of these uh, crypto lenders. I don't understand why Signature Bank was included with the Fed's announcement today. The FDIC has gone in as receiver for that bank as well. And it's a very big crypto bank. So we've got what looks a bit like a sideways attack on crypto. It's been talked about in Washington a lot. I would not be surprised if this was part of it. And I'm not a paranoid person. I can't understand other, why it's happening otherwise. But I think it is definitely they're trying to clean up, trying to get US banks out of crypto. And this is one way to do it. The other side of it is that the critical component of crypto economics or crypto economies are US dollar pegged tokens, right? Stable coins. And the most common are collateralized stable coins. They're collateralized with assets in the real world and all kinds of different assets, usually US dollar assets. And the idea is they're basically money market funds. You issue these tokens for cash and that cash gets put into like a bank. You put it into other assets those assets, right? If it's like fed deposits or two-day treasury bills, then you're matched, right? People can take tokens to the issuer and they'll get back cash right away. But that's not what they've done generally, right? They've bought all sorts of stuff, including they put $3.3 billion, in the case of USDC, that's Circle, they put $3.3 billion into Silicon Valley Bank, which they wouldn't have got back, likely. Now with this bailout, they're going to get their money back. And 3.3 billion doesn't sound like a lot. It's a $40 billion money market fund that issues $40 billion worth of USDC coins, stable coins. But and let's say, so that's but it's 8%, let's say. You might say, ah, it's not a big deal, right? They they can make good. I don't know if you remember during the global financial crisis, but reserve fund had 1.2% exposure to Lehman. What happened? There was a bank run. It, the buck. it was halted. Yeah, it broke the buck. It had to be bailed out by the US government. And then it was liquidated <laughs> with 1.2% in risky assets. So this is 8% that could have gone under. But this is another problem, right? If you eliminate banks, regulated institutions could hold crypto. What happens to these stable coins? This is another element of this puzzle that has yet, yet to unfold,
1: I think. We're going to have to come back on, I think, two topics. We're going to come back on this topic the role of we can we're going to be talking a lot about euro dollars i think and euro dollar deposit accounts and that sort of thing that'll be interesting we're going to talk about the implications for fintech and for the vc space because i think that's going to be interesting because there's a lot of infrastructure that silicon valley bank and signature bank and others have that provides fintech infrastructure which could ch- be changing here and that could change the dynamic for many fintechs and of course changes you know that are likely to come out of this environment as we learn more about the banks and how the treasuries are going to be managed. Rashid, this has been amazing. So much insight. It's going to be an interesting week. I really appreciate you taking time on a Sunday night in Canada to speak to us. And I'm going to look forward to having you back again to cover off all those other topics.
2: Really enjoyed this conversation. There's going to be a lot more to come, I think, on this.
0: It's been really great. This has been tomorrow's news. We'll see you next week.